are listening to the Sports Daily. I'm your host, Reality Steve. Thank you all for tuning in. Good Thursday show for you. We're going to talk a little bit more about the Big 12 and their acquisition of the four Pac-12 schools, but what it also meant for basketball. We're going to talk a little fantasy football. No, I'm not going to say who are the sleepers and who are the studs and who to stay away from. That's not really my concern. Just going to talk about fantasy football in general. College football top 25 came out this week. I have not talked about it yet. We're going to talk about that a little bit, and then we're going to end talking about the whole Michael Orr situation because the Tuies responded to his lawsuit against them, and it's pretty much what you'd expect. We'll get to all that momentarily. So I first wanted to start off with the fact that the Big 12 commissioner, Brett Yormark, came out and said that they were in discussions with Gonzaga and UConn to join the Big 12. We'd be like, well, Gonzaga doesn't have a football team. No, they don't. UConn does. But they were going to join the Big 12, basically, um, basketball, to increase the Big 12's visibility in basketball. Right now, I think the Big 12 is the best conference in college basketball. Can you imagine if they would have landed Gonzaga and UConn? Yes, geographically, totally undesirable, because every team in the Big 12 is, well, now with the addition of Arizona, Arizona State, Utah, and Colorado, they've gone a little bit more west, but, I mean, Spokane is way Pacific Northwest, and UConn is, you know, northeast. So you would have had two just outliers, but what a conference that would have been for basketball with Gonzaga, a perennial top-five team who's been to... Final Fours and National Championship games within the last 10 years. Also, you've got UConn, who is the defending national champion. Then you've got your mainstays in the Big 12 with Texas Tech, always a solid basketball team. Baylor, Kansas. I mean, that would have been one hell of a basketball conference. Adding UConn in football really doesn't do anything. But I think now, and the president, Brett Yormark, even said, he goes, I think we're the deepest conference in college football. And I think you can make an argument for that. You can talk about the SEC. The SEC is a better conference than the Big 12. But I'll say it until I'm blue in the face. The SEC is very top-heavy. They have two dominant teams consistently year in and year out, obviously top three teams at the beginning of every season for the most part in Alabama and Georgia, and Georgia's the two-time defending national champion. Then I think it's a step down to get to LSU, and then it's a step down where you got a lot of middle-of-the-road teams that are just too inconsistent. I mean, Kentucky will win you seven to nine games a year. Auburn, while they've had some, some really shitty years recently, you know, are good. They're a good, you know, six to nine win team consistently and get to a decent bowl game. And then Mississippi and Mississippi State, like, they're good in the middle, but they're certainly not dominant. You mean to tell me that Mississippi would, you know, run roughshod over the new Big Ten and their middle teams? No, they wouldn't. Neither would Mississippi State, neither would Kentucky. It's just not the way it's going to be. Big 12, you know, they've got a good football conference. Now bring in, you know, Colorado's going to be good. Not Maybe not right away, but they're going to be good with Dion there. I'm convinced of that. Arizona and Arizona State, mm, 
they're okay. Utah is a dominant Pac-12 team. Now they're coming to the Big 12. Then you've got your Baylors, your Kansas State, the defending Big 12 champion. It's a good, good football conference from top to bottom. So, you know, you've got your you got your Iowa State, you know, Iowa State, Baylor, Kansas is now good in football. Utah. I mean, they've got seven or eight solid teams that, yeah, they might all beat up on each other, but that's what I'm saying. From top to bottom, I think this might be the best conference in college football. From top to bottom, one through 16. SEC is the best conference because they have the best teams, top teams. Big 10 is very top heavy as well. But after you get through the Michigan, Ohio State, Penn State, UCLA, Oregon, USC, I mean, well, that's six that's six of the 18 teams, but the other 12 teams are pretty middle of the road. You know, your Minnesotas, your Northwesterns, your Michigan States, your Nebraskas, it just it's all, they're all the same, you know? Yes, some teams have better years here and there. I get it. But there's just a distinct top-heavy conference with Big Ten and SEC, where I think Big 12 is just solid 1 through 16. They really are. But speaking of college football, your college football top 25 came out earlier this week. No surprise, Georgia is the top team, top vote-getting team. They got 60 of the 63 first-place votes. They're the two-time defending national champion. They're breaking in a new quarterback this year. That's the only thing that's unproven about them. Yes, they lose players off their defense, but they lost players off their defense last year, going into last year, and last year's defense might have been better than the season before it when they won the national championship. So uh, their only really <laughs> question mark is that quarterback, and it's not like the quarterback has to do, you know, throw for four or 5,000 yards in Georgia's system because you've got such a good defense. For those that don't know, Michigan's in at number two, Ohio State's in at number three, Alabama's four, and LSU is five. Rounding out the top ten is SC, Penn State, Florida State, Clemson, and Washington. And, I mean, this year, I talked about it when Jordan Rogers was on the podcast, and I'll say it again, the Pac-12 has the best set of quarterbacks in the nation. You've got Caleb Williams at USC, ranked sixth. You've got Michael Penix at Washington, they're ranked 10th. You've got Cam Rising at Utah, they're ranked 14th. Bo Nix at Oregon, they're ranked 15th. Oregon State at 18 has got DJ Uyunglele. Then you've got, so there's, what, six teams? Five teams I just named? They've got some really good quarterbacks in that conference. And I think this is a team, I think this is a conference that could finally get a team. I think in the since the college football playoff started, the only two teams that I remember ever getting to the four-team playoff from the Pac-12 were Oregon one year, uh, the year they lost to Auburn, and Washington made it one year, and they got blitzed by, I believe, Bama. It was like 31-6 or something like that. Like, just wasn't 27-6. It just, they weren't competitive. SC has never made the four-team playoff. But with Caleb Williams, and with SC, it just comes down to this. Can they stop anybody? I mean, this is a team that lost to Tulane in a bowl game last year. 
All the credit in the world to Tulane. They were the surprise team in college football last year. They ended up winning, I believe, 11 games. But And I understand that USC lost a chance to play in the Rose Bowl, so they didn't have a shit ton of motivation for their bowl game. I get it. But you're USC. When you line up against the Tulane Green Wave, you win that game every day of the week and twice on Sunday. And they didn't because their defense was god-awful last year. And every Lincoln-Riley team has had a god-awful defense. So is he ever going to pay attention to his defense? Because if USC has any sliver of defense this year, they should go undefeated because their offense is that good and Caleb Williams is that good. He's going to be the first pick in the NFL draft next year. It's not even going to be close. I know some people are making a case for Drake May out of North Carolina. He's probably going to be number two, but don't tell me that Drake May is going to end up being taken over Caleb Williams. He's not because Caleb Williams is the prototypical quarterback that the NFL is looking for right now. Huge arm, escapability, can run, and he's accurate. So he's going to be number one. But, yeah, I'm looking forward to the college football season as I am every year. I just think, you know, looking at these preseason rankings mean absolutely nothing. I know some people are – all it is is basically for recruiting purposes and to put in your press releases for, we you know, you're just adding on to, oh, we started the season number five and we were a, we were a top five team in 2023. You can say that if you're Georgia, Michigan, Ohio State, Alabama, or LSU. You can say that. And that's really all it's used for because it doesn't mean anything. What you're ranked right now on August 17th means absolutely nothing – come college football playoff time. So who cares where you're ranked at the beginning of the year? It's what you're ranked at the end of the year. Hell, I don't think rankings should even come out until November. What's the point? What's the point of being ranked after week three in college football? It's just a number next to your name. It means absolutely nothing when you're talking about what's the objective for college football teams to win the national championship or at least get to the playoff to give yourself a chance. Well, that ranking next to your name in mid-September means nothing. So I don't think they should do it until November, but they're not going to listen to me. And I can tell you this. I don't know the exact statistic, but I do know that there's always one team every year that starts out in the top 10, the preseason top 10, that finishes out of the top 25 by the end of the season and there's always one team that's not even ranked in the top 25 to start the season that ends up in the top 10 at the end of the season. Who's that team going to be? Impossible to know if I did. Again, be rich. But the teams outside the top 25 right now that are receiving votes, if you want to look at somebody that could finish as top 10, Texas Tech, South Carolina, UCLA, Texas San Antonio, Arkansas, Boise State, Pittsburgh, Kentucky, Louisville, Troy, Kansas, Auburn. Just looking at those teams, who could finish in the top 10 there? I know a lot of people are on Texas Tech. I, 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 could, I could possibly see Texas Tech. I could possibly see Kentucky because I like Devin Leary. As long as Devin Leary stays healthy, he transferred from NC State. They've got themselves a quarterback to replace Will Levis. And I could possibly see UCLA, but UCLA has a freshman quarterback, Dante Moore. I believe he's going to get the starting job. If Dante Moore is as good as advertised, I could see UCLA starting the season outside the top 25 and finishing top 10. So I, of those schools that I just named, I think Texas Tech, UCLA, and Kentucky would be my best bets for out of top 25 to start the season. 
in the top 10 at the end of the season. But it's a long season, and it starts next weekend. We will see. Only five games next weekend. The best one is probably Notre Dame-Navy, and that's just because of name value, not necessarily a great game. Notre Dame is currently a 20-point favorite, but it's college football. We're all excited. Week zero. I don't care if it's week zero. Just means I'm one week closer to leaving for Vegas. I leave for Vegas three weeks from today. I can't wait. Counting down the minutes. So getting ready for college football season. I said I wanted to talk a little fantasy football, and my draft is on Sunday. You don't care to hear about it. I don't care to hear about your team, to be honest with you. Just the way kind of things work. I mean, everyone plays fantasy football now. It's a huge deal. I'm not much of a daily fantasy football player. In fact, I'm just not a daily fantasy football player. I'm, I while I like fantasy football, keeps me interested on Sundays. I like because I like statistics and stuff like that. I, I'm just not a guy that geeks out over it and gets all excited. And we have a league where you know if you lose, you have to perform some stupid act or anything like that. Yes, we play for money. It's a you know it's a nice you know you you win four figures you know if you win our pool and. Uh, there's a little bragging here and there, but it's just I'm not somebody that on a weekly basis just has to get so into my starting lineup and all this. So that's why I'm just not in the DFS because I have to change it every week. For the most part, the team that I draft this Sunday is probably going to be my team most of the season outside of if an injury occurs and I have to pick up somebody new. It's just the way it goes for me. Like, I have a plan going into my draft on Sunday. And, by the way, if you're in fantasy football and you still do a snake draft, join us here in 2023. Do an auction draft. Snake drafts are literally the stupidest thing you can do because it rewards a coin flip. Why would you want to reward a coin flip? Because, let's face it, if you have a snake draft, and let's say you have 12 teams in your draft, we know how it works. Whoever gets the first pick He's the only person that has a shot at the best player in fantasy football. And depending on what kind of draft you have and what, if you do PPR, you don't do PPR. But if you're in a PPR draft, Justin Jefferson's the best player to draft in your draft, period. But only one person has a shot at Justin Jefferson when you draft that way in a snake draft. Why not do an? It just makes all the sense in the world to do an auction. That means every single team, no matter where you finished, in your draft order, has a chance at every single player. You have a fake amount, you have a salary cap that's fake money, and you have to manage your team that way. It just makes more sense than just like, okay, you're picking first, you're picking 12th. When we get to the 12th pick, you get two picks. You get number 12 and number 13. I just think that's silly. Give everyone a chance to have in on the best players because then you managing your team Way more than, oh, I picked first? Great. Now I can take a nap until I pick at 24 and 25. It's like, great, you got the first pick, and now you don't get another pick until 24 and 25. Whereas if you have an auction draft, everybody's in on every pick until you run out of salary cap money. So I would do it that way. We've been doing it in our league for years. It's so much more entertaining than, all right, team number one, you've got the first pick. Who do you want? George Jefferson? Justin Jefferson? Okay. Team number two, who do you want? I'll take Jonathan Taylor. Okay. It just no fun in that. Bid. You all have fake money. You Everyone has a salary cap of whatever you want to set it at. 
Somebody, whoever has the first pick, just throws out a name. I'll throw out Justin Jefferson. Great. The team who has the 10th pick says, I want him for 10 bucks," And then you just keep going back and forth, and it's an auction. And then finally, somebody's going to chicken out, and the number will get up to a certain amount, depending on what you set your salary cap at, and somebody will basically back out. And the last person who had the highest bid will end up getting them. It's great. It's so much more fun. A lot of good shit talking. Do that. Don't do snake drafts anymore. They're dumb. And finally, going to end it with more coming out about the Michael Orr and the Tui family situation that adopted him. He's saying, no, I wasn't adopted. I just found out in February I signed conservatorship papers. I was never adopted by them. So the Tui family has responded to his claims saying that or threatened them to go public with his story if they did not pay him $15 million. Now, the Tui's off, uh, off, um, lawyer says that Orr's claims are outlandish. The idea that the family ever sought to profit off Mr. Orr is not only offensive, it's transparently ridiculous. They opened their home to Mr. Orr, offered him structure, support, most of all, unconditional love. They had consistently treated him like a son and one of their three children. His response was to threaten them, including saying he would plan a negative story about them in the press unless they paid him $15 million. And then <laughs> Orr's legal team responded to the Tui's response by saying, we try cases in the courtroom based on facts. We have confidence in our judicial system and in our client, Michael Orr. We believe that justice will be served in the courtroom and we hope to get there quickly. So again, as we talked about when this was first brought up, there are so many legal mumbo-jumbo things that we are going to be hearing about that I think it's still very hard to say, oh, this is definitely Michael Orr's case to win or it's definitely the Tui's case to win. What I do know is this. Once Michael Orr came out with his lawsuit, it was not surprising to hear the Tui's come back and say, that is ridiculous. His, his lawsuit is without merit. You know, I don't think in the history of... Anytime a lawsuit is brought about in sports, the defendant comes out and says, wow, they got a great case against us. We're screwed. Like, how many times have you ever heard that? Hell, in obvious cases, you hear something along the lines of this never happened and we are waiting for our day in court to show the other side that this never happened. So it's so early to make a judgment on this because we just don't know. We haven't seen the documents. There are people that have seen the documents that Michael Orr signed and said he did sign conservatorship papers after he turned 18. Now he's saying the two he said, oh, it's just like adoptive papers. Well, does that get to stand up in court or is there something legally that shows that they told him that? Like I said, there's so many things here. We just don't know enough yet. So I wouldn't get too crazy on oh, the Tuohys are absolutely right and Orr's trying to snake $15 million from them, or the Tuohys have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. They've exploited him, and Michael Orr's been the victim in all of this. We just don't know enough yet. I haven't seen finances. What I do know is this, just based on limited knowledge. If it is true that this movie made $300 million, which it did, three hundred dollars to $350 million, the blind side, and Michael Orr never made a penny off of it, that's wrong. So I don't even maybe he shouldn't have told that to the Tuohys if, in fact, he actually did, because the Tuohys are claiming that. OK, great. 
Show us proof. Did he say it in a text? Did he say it over a phone call? If he said it over a phone call, if that phone call wasn't recorded, how do we know that the Tuies aren't lying about saying Michael Orr threatened us with a $15 million? He told us he'd go public with a negative story on us if we didn't pay him $15 million. What I do know is Michael Orr's owed a shit ton of money for a movie making $300 million that without him and without his story, there is no movie. So I need to know for sure that he's never collected anything off this movie. He's never had some sort of percentage, which that doesn't bode well for me. And if he was talked out of it or he was told not to sign something so he wouldn't get some sort of percentage, how about now after the movie has made all this money, somebody just gives him something, you know? I don't care that he made money in the pros and he signed a contract in the pros. He can still sign a contract in the pros and make millions of dollars like he did and still make money and a percentage off of a movie based on his life. So let's just be fair here. Let's not immediately crucify or let's not immediately crucify the twoies. Not Let's not immediately just say one side is absolutely right and the other side is completely wrong. We just don't know enough yet. Well, like I said, when this comes to legal matters, especially in sports, every time a lawsuit is thrown out, of course the defendants come out and say, this is ridiculous, this isn't even a thing, this never happened. It's like, of course they're going to say that. I mean, so I, I, I think we just have to wait and see. I know everything needs to be, you know, debate TV. We need to talk about it. You have to take a stance one side or another right now. How can you do that in a case like this where you don't know anything? Or has his side, Tui's have their side, and it's completely opposite. So maybe someone is flat out lying or maybe somewhere the truth lies in the middle. We don't know yet. But let's not make this into Or's a bad guy or the Tui's are a bad guy. Bad guys, bad family. We just don't know yet. The only thing I do know is that we, factual, the only thing that's fact that movie made $300 million, period. And that movie was about Michael Orr. If he hasn't seen money from that, that's wrong. He should get paid something. I don't know how. I don't know when. But he should be making money off that movie, period, end of story. Thank you all for listening. Really appreciate it. Please follow me on Apple Podcasts. Also, rate and review if you can. We're back tomorrow with yet another Sports Daily. So thank you all for tuning in. Tell your friends about it. Tell everyone about it. Let them know. We're talking sports here on the Sports Daily every single day. Thanks to me, Reality Steve. Thank you all for tuning in. I appreciate it. And remember, sports will always be the greatest reality show on television. See you!